so Leslie and I just finished putting together our will, and she wants you to be the witness. You mind signing it? That's your will? You need that many pages to say give my stuff to my wife? It's a complicated legal document. Doesn't have to be. I've had the same will since I was eight years old. Upon my death, all of my belongings shall transfer to the man or animal who has killed me. Where are these weird symbols? The man who kills me will know. Welcome to Money in the Mind. Join Andy, a mental health therapist, and Aaron, an accountant, as they explore personal finance, psychology, and provide resources to help on your financial journey. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 45 of Money in the Mind. Today, we are joined by a special guest, Dr. Christy Archuleta from the University of Georgia. She is a professor in the financial planning program at the University of Georgia, a licensed marriage and family therapist, and a certified financial therapist. Previous, previously, she was an associate professor and program director of the personal financial planning program at Kansas State University, which if, I'm, if I have my um, understanding of the field correctly, is kind of one of the pioneers of financial therapy in general at K-State. So... Dr. Archuleta is also a co-founding board member and past president of the Financial Therapy Association, co-founding editor of the journal Financial Therapy, and that's where Andy and I first learned about her work. And she's also a co-founder of Women Managing the Farm. Uh, She's been featured in the New York Times, Investment News, CNBC, and other places, and that is not her full a really interesting biography, but we'll include that in our show description. So Dr. Archuleta, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Well, my first question is, so when do you find time to sleep? <laughs> that is, that is quite <laughs> That's a the, really good question, but I do rat. try to make time for sleeping. Yes. <laughs> That's quite Between the... chasing my family and, and all of the many roles that I get to do, which are fun and exciting. Um, I try to make time for sleep as well. <laughs> Not always as much as I should get them. Oh, I hear you. Um, so yeah, first and foremost, do you have uh, do you have a formative story about, uh, you know, your background, kind of what led you to this area of research? You know, I, um, being a therapist myself and having worked with a few couples, obviously finances are something that that are heavily involved in that con- or need to be heavily involved in those conversations. But yeah, tell us, tell us about yourself and, you know, keep that rap sheet going if, uh, if you'd like to as well. Yeah. So it's kind of a, a little bit of a long story, but I understand that we have some time to talk about it. So um, I would, I would have to start way back when um, even just growing up. So I grew up in Northwest Oklahoma, and I really credit my my family and my my parents really for you know kind of instilling in me this idea of really strong money management skills. Um, and if you're if you've ever been far, part of a family business or a farm business, um, a farm business in particular, you have business discussions at the dinner table, in the pickup, driving from field to field, or wherever you have them. So in the pasture while you're feeding the cattle. And so there was always interesting conversations around money and business decisions. And of course, I was a part of those in terms of, you know, when it was appropriate. I don't think there was anything that was ever shared that wasn't appropriate. And so that's one thing I always really, um, I, I applaud my parents because they did a great job of setting really good boundaries. And we can talk about that later. Kind of set the stage um, for me when I went to college, and you know, trying to figure out what I wanted to do when I when I grew up, um, I decided I, I really love helping people, and so I wanted to be a helper. And one of the things that really was attractive to me was marriage and family therapy, and really helping families and couples um, have strong relationships with one another. So that was something that was important to my family and something that I wanted to carry on and help other families with. And so I really set my path towards becoming a marriage and family therapist. And you have to go to grad school to become a marriage and family therapist. And so 
I was like, what's the track and and getting me there. But along the way, I decided I wanted to also have some sort of business background, business minor. I might want to run my own business someday or have my own practice or nothing else. I'm probably going to own a farm at some point. (laughs) And so some business background might be helpful in that case. So I figure you can't go go wrong with that. So I did do a business minor. And what I found is that I really loved accounting. I loved my accounting classes. I loved them so much that I almost changed my major. And I was like a junior. <laughs> so this was not a good time to change your major. As any student could, could probably attest who thinks about changing their major um, in their junior year. Because I would want to do something that was agricultural related as well. And so when I figured out how long that was going to take me, I decided, no, I'm just going to stay on this path. I I want to continue this. And kind of during that time, I heard these speakers who were marriage and family therapists. They came to campus where I was going to school and they talked about how money was a huge issue in couple relationships. And it was just like I had this aha moment, like, oh my goodness, Maybe I could somehow blend my interest in accounting and money with my interest in helping couples and families. And and that will be, that'll be great. I had no idea that it didn't exist, but that would be very, really cool. So when I started looking at graduate programs, I specifically started looking at programs that were... Um, had a financial planning program in them. I was familiar with financial planning because there was a a graduate program at the school that I was attending. Um, And so I was familiar with that and I was kind of location bound a little bit. So I looked for strong schools who had both a marriage and family therapy program and a financial planning program and found myself at Kansas State. um, And that's where I did my master's and my PhD in marriage and family therapy, and then I did a track in financial planning along the way. And so with those connections, I was kind of connected in two different professions and two different disciplines and um, made some really great connections with people who were like-minded. And that's kind of how it came to be. My my faculty, uh, the faculty were really supportive of helping me blend and kind of carve out this niche And so that was really, really helpful. I mean, I don't think either I had a major professor from financial planning and I had a major professor in uh, in marriage and family therapy. (laughs) And I don't either one of them were like, okay, I don't know how to make this work just right, but we'll we'll help you figure it out. And we're going to be supportive of of your endeavors. So that was um, I had a lot of support in order to to get me out the door, (laughs) per se. in, in my graduate degrees. And so then from there, I, I uh, was hired as a faculty member in personal financial planning. And I don't think I had ever had any intentions or that wasn't really on the radar. I actually kind of thought that I would become a administrator or have a practice in rural Kansas or rural Oklahoma um, and be a marriage and family therapist. And I'd probably work with a lot of people who had financial issues. Um, but I decided I liked research <laughs> and teaching. And um, then I, I went the academia, academia way. And that's how I found myself applying for jobs at universities and found myself at Kansas State, which was a really great place for me to go because, as you noted at the beginning, that was really K-State was, is really a pioneer in financial therapy. Um, many of the people who are movers and shakers in this space um, and helped get this started and off the ground, we're at Kansas State. And so if we think about John Grable, who's now here at the University of Georgia as well, Sonia Luter, who's at Kansas State, um, Dottie Durbin, who spent some time at Kansas State. Um, originally, she was at Texas Tech, she, then she went to Kansas State, and then she went back to Texas Tech. And um, Megan McCoy is there now. Um, so there's a number of people, and I, I know I'm not listing off everybody. <laughs> um, so I should probably stop listing names. 
Um, but again, it's it's been a place that's really been an innovator in the financial therapy space. First to start um, the nation's first academic program, um, which is a graduate certificate in financial therapy. Now it's part of a master's degree that you can you can get. It's still a master's degree in personal financial planning, but you can have that emphasis and. In financial therapy. Dr. Klontz, Brad Klontz, you had him on this show. Um, he was part of that academic program when we first started it. So there is a lot that happened in, in a few years um, to help move this forward. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot there. And it's, it's such a, a fascinating, relatively new field. And I'm wondering what kind of what's maybe some of the contrast between the financial therapy research and field that you've done and how that contrasts with something like the behavioral economics field with, you know, some of the big names like Daniel Kahneman and Tversky and uh, Richard Thaler, some of those prominent people. What, what might be some of the differences with what you're doing and, and what they've done? Yeah. So I'd say that one of the biggest differences between what I do within the financial therapy space and what happens in behavioral economics is that in behavioral economics, it's really understanding mindset and how people think um, and how that impacts how they make decisions. And it mostly happens around investment um, and how people make investments, how they make decisions around investments. In financial therapy, it's really integrating behavior, relationships, emotions, thoughts around money, and helping a person change what they're doing now so that they can have better outcomes. So where they can maybe change what they're doing or how they're thinking about something or um, how they're thinking about something or feeling about something and, and moving that and changing that so that those can be more positive experiences. So you can have maladaptive ways of how you think or feel or behave around something or how you relate to someone else, um, which has a huge impact on one's financial well-being, um, relational satisfaction, those sorts of things. And so tapping into one of those areas to help someone change so that they can have better outcomes, improved financial well-being, um, improved satisfaction with their relationships, um, overall well-being is really how I would kind of define the differences. All right, that's 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 always been an interesting thing to me because yeah, there is so much that was uh, founded in how companies run their investment programs and stuff from you know Thaler's research about how mm -hmm. um, just automatically sign everyone up for three percent, nobody knows the difference, and then you know we're not. People get into their retirement age and they're like, oh, no, I've done nothing. Oh, wait a second. You got something, you know? Um, yeah. So yeah, absolutely. Making it personal and understanding those maladaptive behaviors and whatnot. So um, I do I do a decent amount of work. If I ever you know, see couples, I do a lot to with, with Gottman's and using utilizing mm -hmm. their research. I'm sure. I don't know if you've heard about yes. them being in family. I might have heard about the Gottman's, maybe. <laughs> I feel like you have to have heard of them. Right. You do I don't know anything. that you can be in the space without hearing about the Gottmans, <laughs> um, which we're very thankful for the Gottmans because they do fabulous research. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and that—that's the other thing is I—I I, I asked Dr. Klontz this question, I, and I want to ask you this question: like, has has anyone in the Financial Therapy Association like ever reached out to them, be like, "Hey, can we like officially marry these these research pieces?" or you know, what, what's that? Yeah, you know, I don't know that it's ever happened in official capacity, but there's a lot of FTA members that utilize Gottman's work um, and integrate that into their work with couples. Yeah, I mean, I'm one of them in my dissertation. I used a lot of their work and I reached out to him and said, can I use this? Oh. Um, so, yeah, um, I think those connections have, have happened in that sort of way. Right, right, right. So one of the questions is, is there a general type of money argument that you, that is the most predictive of relationship dissatisfaction? Like you're spending too much. You didn't tell me this, like that, that incest, the infidelity, you know, what have you, you know, Gottman's identify the four horsemen as predictors. So how does that relate to the money side of things? Ooh, that's a really good question. 
I don't know that there's any specific research that talks about the type of financial argument, more that financial arguments are different than other types of arguments that couples have in their relationship. So it's they're typically different than parenting arguments or household arguments, which tend to actually be more frequent than money arguments um, from what we can see in the research, but they're a little less emotionally charged. So um, which contributes to these intense arguments um, that tend to happen around money. Um, but yeah, so I think it depends. Um, of course, the saver spender because opposites attract is a huge, is, is probably one of the most common. And I think that's probably because it's one of the more studied um, types of arguments that's that has been studied. But certainly when you get into, especially having adult children and setting boundaries and having differences in terms of how how we do that, because that brings in the parent, almost like a parenting element as well as um, the money issue. I think those can be pretty emotionally charged and intense. Um, but at this point, really, the spender saver arguments are the ones that have been studied the most. And so I, I don't know. I can't say for sure that that's the most frequent argument. But because couples tend to be attracted to someone with, you know, a different personality um, that complements them. So they're really complementary of one another that's probably one of the bigger issues, bigger types of arguments. Okay. And then, and then the opposite spectrum, are there any sort of indicators that predict typically a healthy um, relationship regarding money mm-hmm. and, and what have you? Yeah. So when I know you work with couples, when I've worked with couples, you know, one of my biggest concerns is when couples don't fight at all. Yeah. That's <laughs> indicator of something is wrong, um, that there is not enough trust there to really dig in deep and to really understand, to to even go there with that person. And so there might be some surface level conversation that happens, but an argument, um, if it's an intense argument, doesn't necessarily mean there's something wrong. It's all about how you approach the argument and can you have the argument And then can you resolve the argument? And so kind of thinking in terms of, you know, the opposite is is arguing bad. No, it's really a good thing because it means you're able to talk to someone about the, the issue, even though you don't agree on it. You trust that person. You have this foundational trust and you're willing to be vulnerable with that other person um, and feel like it's a safe place to have the argument. Because you know, in the end, you're going to follow through and you're going to resolve. So there's going to be a, a positive outcome on on the end, and it's not just getting swept underneath the rug. So that's how I would look at it. I don't know if you would have something different that that you would say from your work with couples. I mean, I I go I go along those same lines, um, and and I think you said it perfectly. And and that's one of those Gottman principles as far as like you know, intense arguments don't equal you know, divorce, they don't equal, you know, awfulness necessarily, you know, there are solvable problems and there are, you know, major issues as well that, that maybe aren't solvable, but they're livable within certain realms. But yeah, typically when, you know, two people want something to succeed, they'll find a way to make that succeed if they're willing to. And I love that. Oh my gosh. I love that word that you said vulnerability that's one of that's one of my obviously in therapy it's it's quintessential to be behavior change and i was gonna i was gonna save this question for last but i think it's a good question to ask we've been trying to ask all of our guests is what how would you define something like financial vulnerability you know because as you which is something that i i would see as quintessential in in the work in the realm of um, financial therapy how would you define financial vulnerability? Ooh, I've never been asked that question before. Ooh, we got it, Ron. <laughs> huh. Okay. So I like it um, because I do. I'm, I'm like you. I think that it is so important to the process. And there's, there's a couple of elements to being vulnerable. Being vulnerable with someone else 
meaning putting yourself out there, trusting that person enough that you feel safe. Um, but there is an there is an aspect of being vulnerable with yourself. And if you're not willing to be vulnerable with yourself and recognize and dig in to understanding what you feel, how you feel, why you feel about it, then it's really going to make it difficult for you to be vulnerable with somebody else, especially if that is difficult because you've had maybe past relationships or family issues that, you know, vulnerability has been difficult um, or there just was broken trust. Um, And so we have to work on ourselves first before we can be vulnerable with someone else. And that means being vulnerable with ourselves. And that really just means really being open and being willing to recognize, share and think about the difficult aspects, the challenges that that we really face, with the, whether it's with ourselves or with someone else. So when we're yeah trying to acknowledge difficulties that we've experienced ourselves and try to start maybe maybe opening some of those wounds that they could be deeply traumatic or mildly traumatic mm-hmm. or any anywhere in between. What what might be some kind of basic like easy therapeutic approaches people can take just just on their own maybe developing mantras or whatever it could be that they could even start before looking for a therapist or someone else that they could talk to yeah good question good question so there's a couple of different approaches that that somebody can take and um, you know, some people benefit from, okay, understanding, you know, what, what are my strengths? What are the strengths that I bring around money? Um, and then being able to kind of tap in looking at, okay, what's, what's more challenging. So if I can recognize what's, what am I good at? What am I doing? And, and why do I need to do this? Um, then that helps be able to dig in a little bit deeper. Um, others, you know, it's kind of like thinking about, I'm really big into like self-talk, like it's okay to talk to yourself. (laughs) Um, And maybe that's because I'm a self-talker. I like to talk to myself all the time. My mom likes to make fun of me (laughs) but um, because I've done that my whole entire life. But uh, it's okay to talk to yourself and just have conversations like, hey, you know, why is this, you know, if I'm in an argument or if something has come up that's bothering me, um, and it continues to bother me. Well, why is that? What what am I what am I feeling? What am I trying to experience here? What what's going on here? And is it something that I can work through on my own, or is it something that I really need help with from someone else? And I think we all can find ourselves at a time where it's it might be useful to get some help from a third person and there's no shame in that. Um, So for so long, you know, getting help from someone has been somewhat of a, you know, poo-pooed or shameful um, process that we've made it, but it's really, everybody can use some help from time to time. Um, But do you need help with absolutely everything? No. Sometimes there are things that you can do on your own Um, And a lot of that is, you know, do you have a supportive network around you? Um, And that's what therapy a lot of times is, is, you know, helping someone to to not be reliant on the therapist. It's what are your what are your support networks and what support networks can you reach out to? Do you have friends or family that you can be vulnerable and that that can be real with you and that can say, hey, you know what? I think what you're thinking is is not really accurate or um, not really, you know, the best approach. Um, so someone who can be really real with you, um, especially if you have trouble doing that with yourself. And a lot of times it's for ourselves to be able to recognize those those things within ourselves because we're used to with things in a certain way. And so sometimes we need that, hey, but here's a person that knows me really well and they can tell me, yeah, 
you're not doing it right, or maybe you should think about it differently. Um, that can really kind of be that that matter to you. Um, so I think there are a number of things that you can do. I, I just realized that I kind of, I don't know that I actually answered your question. <laughs> no, you, you did. Cause one of the first things you said okay. was, um, if, if something's happening in your life and this is something that, that could be reiterated over and over and over and over again, um, your body's going to respond in ways yes. that are uncomfortable if something isn't right in your head, because your emotions are, I mean, it's a physiological response, right? Like right, they're founded exactly. within your entire nervous system, yes. which is why we, you know, shake when we get angry or mm-hmm. our stomach hurts when we get anxious or, you know, what exactly. have you. So yeah, perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Or your neck hurts or your head hurts. So, you know, like all of these symptoms that you keep having those over and over again, that's telling you something. Maybe money related, it may not be money related. Yeah. Believe it or not, your body is literally wired to yeah. respond and say, hey, something's yes. not right. It's the same mm-hmm. thing as like, if you're hungry, you, everyone knows what that feels like, you know, and if something's yeah. not right in your head, then you're going to feel it in your body. Yeah. That's why we have hangry. There you I go. Angry <laughs> when you're hungry. <laughs> Runs always or irritated, but that's, I think that's a good parallel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My wife doesn't feel that way. I feel that way probably on average every other day. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Ron. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that's, that's really, yeah, that was a very helpful answer. And I can think of, I can think of just personally, you know, there was a time a handful of years ago where the, the self-talk combined with going for a walk, I didn't realize yes. I had no idea what I was doing, that it was that healthy of a thing, but it was incredibly healthy. And then there, there were some other anxiety related things that I found mm-hmm. I wasn't capable of helping myself with. So then I did a few years ago. I, I saw a therapist and, and I got some more tools and I, 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 I'm not someone who's, who was a really problematic or had a ton of stuff to work through, thankfully. Um, but I, in both cases, you know, I've seen, yeah, there are some things you can do to, to help yourself. And then if you don't have tools, you know, a therapist can help you build some of those. So. Yeah, exactly. And I love that you brought up going for a walk because that's, you know, a lot of times when we talk about money, we talk about stress. So, you know, that's the most common response that people have about money in general is, is a stress response. And so just working through that stress response. And part of that is it's a physiological response that you can answer with a physiological um, I say physi- answer with, with something physiological. Um, so, you know, walking, running, exercising, which are all very basic fundamentals of managing stress in general. So, yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Oh, yeah. We, um, I, I did a talk a couple of weeks ago about burnout and how it affects us. And I was citing mm-hmm. some of the Nagoski, um, they're, you know, female. I don't know if you've heard of them, but like, yes, I actually just did a presentation about burnout as well. We should exchange notes. Oh, there we go. There we go. Yeah, we, we mostly about- because I want your notes. <laughs> I'll, I'll toss them to you. Yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, and, and and we talked about the the stress cycle and how physical activity is the best ways yes. to reduce the stress in your life, not the stressors, but mm-hmm. the stress. Anyway, that's that's right. incredible. Oh yeah, the stressor might not go away, but you can manage the stress. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Oh, complete the cycle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Complete it. I I've been I've been it. using that in inpatient psych. So real quick. Uh, so about self-talk, I have, you know, I, I work inpatient psych. So I work with people with schizophrenia, uh, bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. And so when they start talking to themselves, uh, people react a little bit differently. And, and I've actually had patients who are, are schizophrenic ask like, well, I, I kind of like talking to myself when I'm really stressed or, or I'm trying to work something out, but then, well, then I end up in a place like this. So am, am I doing something wrong? <laughs> and I was like, well, there's a difference between self-talk and talking to somebody who isn't there. So, um, and then, and then we'll, we'll talk about those, those, uh, different things. Cause I, I can guess if I see Ron on the trail, cause we're, we both live in Omaha. If I see Ron on the trail and he's, uh, um, just talking to himself and uh, having a full fledged conversation, uh, I'm going to stop and be like, hold on a second. Is this self-talk or do I need to, <laughs> do we need to hospitalize you, Ron? No. Right. <laughs> I love self-talk. Right. I love, I do it to myself all the time. So, 
There we go. It's very helpful. <laughs> very much. And because I think it helps you process things because typically, you know, what's the, what's one of the biggest, you know, uh, enemies to mental health beside like shame and, and that's repression, which creates shame. Yep. And, and the more that we stay silent about something, the more that we let it consume us. And, and that's why mm-hmm. one of the things that, that makes therapy so powerful is that when you can talk about something that you're struggling with, you don't allow it to, you know, you, you make it loosen its grip on you, you know, every time. Yeah, which goes like, back to that internal vulnerability we were talking about earlier and the external vulnerability. Oh, yeah. yeah. So that's, that's, that's wonderful. And oh, burnout. God, we, yeah. we already had a whole episode on burnout. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. Ron, do you have a- Everybody's feeling it. That's for sure. Oh yeah. And that was what the whole talk was about was it was related to how COVID is causing a lot more burnout because it's this added yeah. extra stress that literally nobody's dealt with in this lifetime. Mm-mm. So how do we- I know. Yeah. And having difficulty finding the capacity to deal with it. Oh yeah. Oh, Ronald, next question. Yeah. So many things I'm interested in. Do you have any good stories of radical financial behavioral change that you've seen in people you've worked with? Just, you know, just to, to show that it's, it, it can be done. It can happen. Oh man. Um, I'm going to have to think about this one. Um, this one's not coming easily to my mind right now. Just because there's so many, there's so many people and couples <laughs> so- that you help that, um, I, I um, also, I do like real quick to reference what you say about, um, not become reliant on your therapist. I always make the joke at work that I'm like, I'm, I'm literally trying to work myself out of a job with every person that I interact with. I, I don't want you to have to come to the hospital to rely on us, to rely on the staff. You know, we, we want to encourage you to be autonomous and, and have accountability and form your own social circles. So just want to keep yeah. reiterating points like that, that, you know, I, I've heard of people that have been seeing their therapist for God, I had a patient that's like, yeah, I've been seeing my therapist for 20 years, once a week. And I think like, what, <laughs> what, what, <laughs> what are you accomplishing kind of thing? Or right. what, what makes you, you know, I, I get, you know, if you're seeing the same therapist for 20 years, but maybe you check in like once a month or, you know, once every six months, just to, like, Hey, how are things going? Kind of thing. Eh. Anyway. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, yeah. We could get in a whole discussion yep. about modalities and you know is when there's a time and place for that so yeah um you know I, I i'm not using a client example but i do think that this happens and use a, a friend example instead um but and, and this is something that i have worked um with couples on as well and probably because i did a lot of bit of premarital work at one point in time working with couples around a lot of different issues and finances was one of them to prepare them to um, go in marriage. I'm recalling some friends who they had the worst conflict over money. Like I really thought at one point they might be getting a divorce over it. Um, They just didn't agree in terms of how thing, how money was spent. It was saved. I mean, if there was something that you could fight about, in regards to money, it, they, they were doing it and they, they decided they had all of their money in joint accounts and they decided that they would separate their money. And then that way she could control, you know, her portion of the money. He could control his portion of the money. And I think that was a little bit like, it was like, okay. And that has worked wonderfully, wonderfully for them because they figured out a system that really worked for them. They just didn't give up. And so that's really con- contrasting to what the research says, which says, you know, typically joint accounts are better than having purely separate accounts. Um, I think there's, it's because there is this element of trust and vulnerability when you have joint accounts that you have to to work together and you have to communicate about what your financial picture looks like. Um, But in their case, that was not working at all. And so couples really have to find what works for them. Um, But just because you have separate accounts doesn't mean that you stop talking about it. 
you're still working together on a common goal, a common shared goal, but you, but it doesn't always have to look like a, the traditional joint accounts. Um, and so that would be, that was something that would actually kind of surprised me at the time. Um, I don't know that much of anything <laughs> surprises me anymore because <laughs> you never know what you're going to learn. Um, but at the time, that was really surprising to me. And um, I really encouraged and worked with clients to find something that works for them. And if it's not working, that it's okay. You need to talk about it and you need to do something different. And so I have seen clients come in that they did not agree. They did not have similar financial goals. They didn't, they, they didn't have really... Um, a lot in common in terms of how you spend and save and what money meant to them. But in the end, they had enough skills to be able to adapt and make changes um, and be able to really try to work with that other person, even though they saw things differently. And so I have seen those sorts of changes and that that story always has come up in about any couple's work that that I've done um, because they really did figure out something that worked and they were willing to try something different. And that's what it takes. You know, if something's not working, do something different. I, I feel like some pe- a lot of people would just give up at that point, which is, you know, probably mm-hmm. one of the contributors to why our divorce rate is so high. Yes. Um, and yeah, just, just knowing that like, you know, and kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier, like even like major problems, even if not solvable, you can still, you can still exist in a realm to where you can be, you know, sur- not surviving, but, but still in a, in a thriving relationship, even though you two completely don't agree on, on a big deal. So yeah. um, one of the things you had mentioned uh, is surprising research and you're like, you know, I surprised that kind of happened, you know, what else? have you found that is that has just shocked you in your research regarding like money and mental health? You know, I think really this probably sounds kind of silly because it's it's really common, not almost common knowledge now that money is a significant issue in relationships. Um, And I think it's probably just my own background, but I knew that it was an issue because I had gone to this presentation. They had told me it was an issue back in college. But the fact that this is really a huge, huge struggle and that couples really are attracted um, to the opposite in terms of even spending and saving. I'm not so sure that that shocks me anymore, but I can remember just thinking like, hmm, you know, that was like a really, really, this really is. <laughs> This really is an issue. Um, so that's that's definitely something I think that that at some point in in time, um, because my family was always fairly, I mean my immediate family was always pretty open about it, um, and I knew that they would always resolve whatever conflict came up. So I, you know, that's that's just how they did things, and so you kind of think, oh, yeah, well, that's how everybody does it. (laughs) But that's not the case at all. So um, just recognizing that people are are from different backgrounds and they have um, different experiences. And that really contributes to why money is such an issue within relationships. And not just couple relationships, but also family relationships and that it can be such an emotionally charged issue. And so we see that a lot, you know, in estate planning, Um, you know, mom and dad have a will and the will doesn't say what they said that it was going to say or what we thought it was going to say about it. But it's certainly not what I expected. Um, You know, Johnny, he got everything and I got nothing or, um, you know, everything was split equally, but, you know, I've been the one who's been the caretaker. So how come I didn't get more than, than others? So, um, just the, the lack of communication, which I saw that in my own family as well. 
Um, I saw two very different ways of handling an, an estate. Um, one was we don't talk about it. And the other one was that we're very open. We plan way ahead. And it, there's quite a difference in terms of outcomes of what has has really transpired since then. And so, yeah, it's it's definitely something that needs to continue to, to be researched. And, you know, we've really only scratched the surface in, in most of these, these topic areas. There's so much more to understand. I'm constantly telling grad students, like, you know, the sky is really the limit. We, we've really only touched the surface. So much more to explore. Have you, have you seen uh, Knives Out? I have not seen okay. that movie. <laughs> Okay. Now, yeah, I only lame when it comes to watching movies. I love to watch them. I just don't have time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's understandable. It's a it's a really fascinating. I mean, it's a mystery, so that's that's interesting off the bat. But it's it's a succession story and estate, you know, passing on the estate type of story. And I think no. there are other. I don't. I haven't watched. I think is it on HBO Succession? I haven't seen it, but I assume since it's called Succession, there's some of that going on. But but yeah, Knives Out is, it's, it's a good one. Okay. Well, now I'm really going to have to watch it. I had no idea what it was about, <laughs> but now I'm encouraged to, to watch it. So maybe if I have a late night that I can't sleep or something, I'll go. find out. I have a, there I have a buddy go. who's an estate planning lawyer and yeah, I've, I've heard horror stories of yeah. like fist fights in like you know, courtrooms or uh, not, not the courtrooms, but the, the room that the they're deciding all this stuff in or whatever. Um, it's, it's atrocious. And, and to not have, I, I always think of Ron Swanson's will and parks and rec when he, mm-hmm. like, he just has it on him and it's a series of like symbols and whatever. And he's like, this can't be a will. And he's like, the person who kills me will understand these things. <laughs> <laughs> So um, oh, I like that. I like that you brought up estate planning because yeah, it, it is something and you want to talk about like <laughs> maladaptive behavior, like, holy. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. Um, and I, something that is really emotionally <laughs> charged. Very, very much so. Yeah. So I, I love what you said about how, you know, the idea of uh, family planning, like money wise is, is so important. And in your house, you know, you said you had it on the way out to the, you know, the, the plots of land and at the dinner table and whatnot. So I'd love to hear from you either anecdotal or research or, or whatever you want to present like that. How can uh, families and couples like really start to engage in good, healthy conversations about, about their finances, about their, their mental health and, and kind of mixing the two? Yeah, I love that question. Um, and so, yeah, so there's a lot of, you know, best practices that you could say, you know, you have to set aside a time and a place to to have these a scheduled conversation, have a, and these are things that I work, have worked with couples and families around. Um, you know, if you have several different topics, maybe you just draw out one topic at a time and you have a limited time in terms of, how long you're going to talk about something. Maybe it's you, you only talk about it for 20 minutes and then you're done. Um, and then when that 20 minutes is up, the 20 minutes is up. And so you've been able to talk about it, but you haven't um, been able or haven't, you know that there's an end. So there's going to be a little, maybe less likelihood of um, creating an atmosphere where it's not, it doesn't produce a very constructive conversation because if you only have 20 minutes, then you're only probably going to scratch, scratch a little bit of what, what's going on. Um, so those are, you know, fundamental practices, but I also think about back to my work with farm families, you know, how do you get dad or grandpa who has been very stoic and does not talk about money whatsoever, who has a business, who and we don't know what his plans are. We don't know when he's going to retire. We don't know if he's going to retire. We don't know when, you know, the, the next generation can come in um, and really be like fully operating, fully owner, owning this. And so those transitions are kind of stalled out. And so those are, those are tricky because we live in a society where we have been taught, told not to have money. 
And, you know, even today it's taboo to, to talk about money. We don't talk about, you know, how much we make or we just only see what people purchase. Um, we only see that kind of their, their outward behavior. We don't, we don't see any of the, the, the inside and, and what is happening, you know, behind the, the doors. And so we live in a culture that says don't talk about it, which reinforces those that have difficulty talking about it and difficulty being vulnerable. And there's also other elements in terms of, you know, that inability or that resistance to be vulnerable and that trigger that stems back to their own past, their own experiences um, with money or how things were transitioned or not knowing how to talk about it. And I think that's a, that's a crucial piece that we just kind of think sometimes that people know what to do and what to say, but that's not the case at all because we've been told our whole lives not to talk about it. So how do you talk about it? And so that's why some of those fundamental ideas of, you know, setting aside a time and a place and a time limit um, can be helpful and can make the process a little bit less intimidating, but to bring that person in, it's probably not an overnight, um, that person who's being resistant, who's not really willing to participate, but is a key player is really, really difficult. And sometimes it means maybe bringing in a third person, a third party, a, a, a mediator, a, a therapist, which was probably also taboo, but creating an environment where that person feels safe and comfortable to have those conversations is, is crucial um, because there's a lot of fear that goes into that inability or that resistance to be vulnerable. Um, the fear of, you know, thinking about, okay, this I'm on, maybe on my last several years of life, or I don't know what's going to happen. So that's scary. Um, not having a plan that everyone's going to like, that's scary. And I'd rather not deal with the conflict now. I'd rather deal with it when I'm gone, or I'd rather deal with it when I'm gone. I'd rather for them to deal with it when I'm gone, which is actually typically worse um, for the for the family members. Um, and so sometimes it's also saying, okay, these are the outcomes that that can happen if you don't talk about this now, your kids will probably not talk to each other. Is, you know, is that what you're hoping for? Is that what you're trying to, trying to do here? Because if you're having this conversation with them now and they can understand why you're making decisions you're making, that's going to help all of them. They might not agree with it, but at least they understand why, where they're not going to have a why. They're going to make up their own why. It's like really bad sex education. Right? There you go. <laughs> that's a that's a hot topic in Nebraska right now. So. Right, right, right. So if you don't know, you make it up, right? Yeah, pretty much. But what we make up is typically so incorrect and so far removed um, because our minds just go to the worst possible thing we can think about. Well, I think, yeah. And, and I think that's where we get into confirmation bias because, you know, we'll start mm -hmm. looking it up online and we're only going to find things that agree with what we think about. And it's like, yeah, see, I right. read this online. It's true. Right. Um, yes. you know, uh, in, <laughs> exactly. our, in our conversation exactly. with Dr. Klontz, you know, that's why he got on TikTok because he saw the like gross information that was out there about financial advising. He's like, oh no, <laughs> you know, by the way, I'm always impressed with his TikToks. I'm like, how do you come? with this stuff. <laughs> right. it's, it's impressive. It's, it's very entertaining and it is very informative too. So it is. Yeah. yeah. And, and I mean, heck that's, that's one of the, it's one of the reasons we do what we do is to put out better information than, than what people are, are experiencing. And that's also why we have a lot of like conversations with very different people um, to present different aspects of what might be good or something, you know, um, 
we had some people on that talked about the fire community and everything I had read about fire was, was frankly kind of negative. And so having Mm -hmm. them on and being able to explain kind of their experience and what they're doing, like it was, it was really cool. It was very eye opening. And, and you're right. Like if people don't know something, well, there, and and there's no education and it's not kind of put in there. They're going to, they're going to find whatever they want to know about it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. What, a um, we can choose to keep this in or not. Uh, what are your, what are your thoughts of Dave Ramsey's approach to finances? You utilizing the amount of research that you have and, and what have you just curious. Um, well, my, uh, my thoughts are that he doesn't necessarily always give what is the financially correct response. I mean, for example, credit cards. So really you should pay off your highest APR credit card first, but a lot of times he'll say, you know, um, you should pay off your smallest balance first, regardless if that's the highest APR or not, which I actually think can work for people um, and works well because they can see themselves making progress. And I think that's helpful for many, many people. Um, so there's a psychological component there and there's a financial component there. And so you kind of have to figure out what's going to work for my client and how's that going to fit within my client's life. I think he's helped tons of people who might not otherwise have had access or the opportunity or even recognize that help is available. Um, so I have seen, you know, him have an impact on, on many people um, through his different church groups and things like that. I do not care necessarily for how he approaches his clients. Um or his, maybe it's just his radio show and, and maybe it's theatrics. I don't know, but I, I have a different idea of how people should be approached, which is with empathy and trust. And it's not a one size fits all. And so we really have to understand and know clients to be able to really work with them and help them change. Um, And so the, some of the approaches I have seen, I, I have not been a fan of. <laughs> and and that's pretty much where we, where we step as well is that, you know, I having the therapeutic background and what have you, like we, we very much approach uh, first off, like from a person to person basis, like every single person's experience is different. Yeah. There's no blanket one size fits all kind of thing. Um, just do these easy, easy five steps and you'll too have a billion dollars in your retirement account, whatever. I know he doesn't say that, but, and I'm exaggerating, but um, right. Essentially anything that's not empathic and, and more shame-based is mm-hmm. it's only going to work for, um, you know, so many people before. And, and also right. I, I think it also kind of changes mentalities too. Um, I know, mm-hmm. and I've said this on the show before, I know I follow the, their Instagram. And when you see these people that are like, I paid off, you know, $397,000 in like six months. And I'm like, first, how much money do you make? <laughs> like to like, what were you doing exactly. with it up until that point? Right. Like, yeah. What? Yes. <laughs> I was like, exactly. I can't imagine having that much money in like two years, you know? Uh, anyway. Right. Um, so yeah, I, that's, that's kind of been our thought. I, I'm just, I'm just curious. I think he's got some basic principles that, that can fit pretty well. Yeah. People just want to get started with something, but yeah, exactly. You know, and it's a place for a lot of people to get started where they might not have otherwise. Exactly. Easily accessible kind of stuff. It's great. Yeah, it's easily accessible. So I really appreciate that. But I'm like, I I don't care for the approach. And it's, um, if you really want to help people change and make a lasting change, it can't be a one size fits all approach. Well, do you have any questions, any comments, uh, anything like that for us? I don't know. What What do you think about all of the psychology of money and financial therapy? Oh, we freaking love it. (laughs) I mean, that's the reason we have a podcast is uh, Ron and I, like I said, for maybe a year or two, we had these conversations on a weekly basis. And finally, we're like, God, we should start recording these things. (laughs) Like, yeah, um, Yeah. it's it's completely quintessential to to our approach with anything. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think I think the reason we have a poverty mindset, I think the reason that 
what is it like 65% of people under the age of 35 couldn't handle a $400 emergency. And, and I'm not going to say that there aren't systemic issues that play into those things, such as, you know, yeah. low pay, um, difficulty with jobs, especially after COVID at the same time, I think, I think a lot of it could be solved if people understood a little bit more about how they think about things and challenge their thinking a little bit more. And I, I think you could see a lot more financially independent people or more financially comfortable people if they, if they took a little bit deeper dive into why they think the way that they think, you know, mm-hmm. because so much of therapy is being comfortable with being uncomfortable. Like yeah. I, I just saw my therapist literally before um, I, we started uh, this, this recording and I know for me, you know, she calls me on my crap and I love that. And that, that helps me a lot. And yeah. so, and I think everyone needs to be a little bit called on their, on their stuff or even not mm-hmm. just, not just like held, uh, held accountable, but also to yeah. kind of understand why they, yeah. they do the things that they Somebody do. Somebody who can be real with you say, Hey, yep. exactly. <laughs> like you said, um, being vulnerable. And so that's, mm-hmm. that's where I, you know, I freaking love this topic. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. I did think of a better question though. So what's been the most surprising thing that you all have heard since you've started doing your podcast? Golly, now we're just stuck in deer in the headlights. Uh, yeah, I think, well, I'm thinking, so I, I, we were first introduced to all this kind of via Dr. Klontz because he's a Creighton guy. So we kind of I think I don't even remember how we first found him, but we just looked up like financial psychology, I think. And in whatever realm, like his name popped up and then Creighton, we're like, Hey, Omaha. (laughs) Yeah. So I think the surprising thing to me was some of the, the money script ideas, just those foundational beliefs that you've acquired over time or acquired, you know, in, kind of these flashpoint moments where you respond to something like, okay, this really bad thing happened. I lost my job. I will never do this behavior again, even if it might not be the causing factor. It might be a correlating, but not causing Mm -hmm. factor. So, so it's really the idea that, well, personal finance, the, the basics are really simple. You want to try to save money. Don't get too crazy with debt. And you want to have, you know, have some backup for when things are inevitably go wrong, unplanned expenditures. So it was just the idea that some of my behaviors might be coming from these unconscious, like I've got one, I've got like a, a money, money status type of scripts going on where it's like, yeah, I, I want nice stuff. So people might think highly of me and how that where did that come from? Like, oh, it came from maybe like wanting to be liked in high school type of thing. So that was just like, holy cow, this is coming from my past experiences and, and none of it that has to do with the actual dollars and cents. So, so kind of opening my mind to some of that was, it was, it was kind of a breakthrough in my, my knowledge of all of this. So I would say it came as quite a surprise. And I'd say for me, uh, mine is just how the depths of which I mean, this is going to be kind of a dumb statement, but like the depths of which psychology really reaches into every aspect of our lives. I mean, it's literally the study of how we think and how we perceive reality and all that stuff. That's, I mean, that's kind of a duh, but at the same time, like all the different people that we've had on to talk about their experience, their research, their side of things, whether that's real estate. I mean, we're having somebody on about their Bitcoin experience. We're having, um, you know, about the fire community, about like starting nonprofits and that, and just like really like the motivation and the ability behind people's ability to incorporate their own experience, anecdote, whatever you want to call it into their financial lives. And really the, the, the breadth of how much all that reaches that that's kind of shocked me. Cause I think like, you know, myself, Oh, let's have this person on. And then you actually get into a really deep conversation. You're like, Oh my gosh, this goes, just goes significantly deeper than you ever think. And that's been, I think maybe shocking to me is just because I think when we started this, we're like, okay, come up with these lists of topics of conversation. And then just, I was like, shoot, I think we're going to be, we're, we're going to be capped at some point, but that that's not been, that's not been the topic at all. That's not been the case at all is that it just keeps expanding. (laughs) Like we're not seeing an end to this. So, um, 
Yeah. Dang. The sky is the limit. Literally, like you said, like <laughs> so much. grad students, what do you want to do more of? Well, does yeah. this thing, I, sure. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Just do it. Yep. <laughs> uh-huh. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh my gosh. We should be in business for a while. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, I don't, yeah. I don't have any other questions, any comments. Any? I've got just, I've got just one more. Um, when I was, you know, trying to prepare for this and saw that you were co-founder of women managing the farm. What I, I looked at the website briefly this morning, but that's all the kind of homework I did. Could you tell us more about that? It sounds like a really interesting organization. Yeah. So it, um, so this kind of evolved from, uh, it really started in Kansas. And I think this, will, if you have Nebraska listeners, um, and especially farmers, uh, this is a, it's a great option for, for women farmers to, to participate in. Um, so this started in, um, gosh, I can't even think now, like probably 2004, 2005. I was a, I was a grad student at K-State. Kansas State. I was got to clarify that. <laughs> I know you know what I'm talking yep, about. Yep, yep. <laughs> and so, um, as someone who grew up on a farm, that is really something very close to me. Um, I come from, you know, females who a family of females who were actively engaged in the farm. Um, I myself am still engaged in our family farm, and so. I, together with several different organizations um, and Kansas State Extension, we we identified that there was this need for particularly for women to have a place who where they were engaged in agriculture, whether they were you know they were an independent farmer themselves, whether they were in partnership with their spouses or partners or with with other family members or whether they were an absentee landowner. And really that's where it really started was, you know, we need to have some sort of education seminars or something for absentee landowners because, you know, we get all these calls and we're not for sure, you know, how there, there's this group of people that we need to, to talk to. And, you know, they're always wanting to know, you know, about leases and different things like that. Well, we had we set up these workshops and that's not necessarily who came it was all of these different all of these farm women who were engaged in different capacities like the independent farm woman the the partner the the helper during the busy season um and the absentee landowners and um i don't know that we ever really thought that it would be continuing today um we envisioned it early on as multiple uh, workshops throughout the state of Kansas. And then we ended up having one big conference during the year. Um, and it was really, it's really a place for women from in agriculture to be connected to one another, to get to know one another. A lot of times they're very isolated um, living in rural Kansas, rural Oklahoma, rural Nebraska. So really all the surrounding areas, um, it's really more of a regional type of event um, of course, um, most of the women are coming from Kansas, but regional women are certainly invited to it. But because they feel isolated and a lot of the the workshops and the education that happens, it's men who attend it. And so sometimes women don't feel very comfortable. They feel like they might be asking a, a silly question or that they will be looked at kind of funny. Um, but this was to give them a safe place to ask those questions um, to, to have a place where they can meet other women who are like them, um, so that they can get to know other people and, and they can have conversations about what's working, what's not working, what they've done. And, um, and so it's been a really great event and there have been people who have attended, I think every single year, um, there's new people that attend every year. Um, and it, I'm not involved in it anymore, but I'm very proud of the work that, that we did and that it still continues that's awesome. You know, uh, over the whole theme of this conversation, I've noticed that like, and, and I could be very wrong, um, but I've just noticed that so much of what you do and so much of what you invest in with your life is, is very like much based around the concepts of like vulnerability and empathy and like meeting where people are. And that just, that says so much about who you are as a person. And I just, I don't want to point that out. That, that's really cool. Like, oh, thank you. Your- I try to be that way. So. But you, you, yeah, and it's like emanating from your pores throughout this conversation. It's been remarkable. 
Oh, thank you. Thank you. That's one of the best compliments I think I can have. <laughs> Um, well, thank you so much, Dr. Archuleta. Uh, this has been a fantastic conversation. Where can people go more to learn about your research, about your work? I mean, we, we know, I mean, we've been reading it for a while, but yeah, just for our listeners. Sure. Yeah. You can definitely go to the UGA website. Um, if you just search my name, you can Google search Christy Archuleta and University of Georgia, and then my profile page will come up. You can see all the different research that I've done. Um, of course, check out the Journal of Financial Therapy. I I don't publish as much in there, but that's because I'm the editor. <laughs> so I like to publish other people's research. Um, but you can certainly uh, see a lot of the research that's happening in this space um, that is uh very relevant to what we've been talking about today. Very cool. Well, we will link to that in our show notes. Uh, so yeah, thank you again uh, for, for coming on, Dr. Archuleta. I could not have been uh, happier. This is a great, great, great conversation. And yeah, for our listeners, just a continued reminder to subscribe to the show. If you do not, give it a like, look it up on Apple Podcasts, give us a review so we can continue getting a great uh, guests and whatnot. So thank you again for listening to Money in the Mind, where we teach you to manage your money and not let it manage you. Take a walk, try to relax. It's not as bad as you think. Brush it off, she'll call in the morning. It's not as bad as you think You know, if you die and you don't have a real will, most of what you own will go to the government. Where is this lawyer you speak of? All right, just let me do the talking here, okay? I mean, he's a lawyer, I'm an accountant, we speak the same language. I mean, obviously, accountants are a little more bad boy, but uh, there's a respect there.